Right? You are indeed made with a purpose. Your life has meaning. A loving God has created you and designed you for more than simply just marking time and then dying. He has eternal purposes for you and has an eternal love for you. And so today, as we continue in our series and the letter to the Philippians, we're going to explore the idea of God's purposes a little bit. And I encourage you, if you've missed any of these other messages, you can find them all on our website, LancasterFirst.com, on the media tab. So we've seen so much good stuff in this letter so far, right? Uh, We've seen that uh, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And we've seen that Paul was able to endure great hardship and difficulty because for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. We saw that God wants our love to abound more and more in depth of insight and knowledge. And he wants us to stand firm in one spirit, striving for the faith of the gospel while being like-minded and loving and having the same tenderness and compassion that Jesus has. And then in the last two weeks, we've looked at some of the most majestic and compelling verses in all of the scriptures. Chapter 2, verses 6 to 11. We saw that Jesus humbled himself and sacrificed himself on the cross to pay the penalty for the sins of humanity, for your sin and, and for my sin. And that therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And you know what? I got to tell you, after preaching that last week, after, after going through those verses last week, I kind of wondered a little bit, you know, where do I go from here? I mean, where do you go after verses like that? You know, but then I thought, you know what? The Apostle Paul had to follow that as well. I mean, after he wrote those verses, there was more he needed to say to the Philippians. So where do we start? Well, we start right where, where the Holy Spirit led Paul to after that as well. So today we're going to look at verses 12 and 13 and see what God has to say to us. So let's read these verses together. And we'll come back and unpack them. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. He says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now, let me read that one more time, all right? Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. All right, would you all bow in prayer with me over the word of God? Oh, dear Heavenly Father, please give us ears to hear what you are saying to us and eyes to see what you are doing in our lives. Open our hearts to understand. Give us the desire and the ability to act out this great salvation that you have given to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, all right, uh, let's go through these verses and unpack them together, all right? Look at verse 12 for a second. Now, just like last week, this verse starts again with the, with the word, therefore. 
He's saying, therefore, since what he just said is true, right? Since Jesus made the greatest sacrifice, since Jesus obeyed the Father by going to the cross for us, he obeyed even unto death. He says, therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. All right, now, stop there for a second. I want you to notice the repetition of the word obey in this passage. I mean, last week in verse 8, we saw that Jesus obeyed the Father, becoming obedient even unto death. And now Paul mentions the Philippians' obedience to the Father, both when Paul was with them and even in his absence. And, you know, I kind of like that because, you know, it kind of looks like Paul is aware that some people act a little differently when the pastor's around. I mean, they clean up their act. They, they clean up their language. If the pastor's coming over uh, to their house, they clean up their living room. Certain movies get, get put away. And then the Bible comes out and gets prominently displayed on, uh, on a table in the middle of the living room, right? And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like some people think that God can only see them if the pastor sees them. Or God can only see the, hear them if the pastor hears them. You know, uh, I remember several occasions when I'd be out somewhere, maybe visiting someone's job site or, or something, and, uh, and someone starts uh, talking with some colorful language, and, 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 and someone will just kind of slap them a little bit and say, hey, 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 come on, smarten up. Uh, you know, that's a pastor right there. And the guy will look a little bit embarrassed and say, oh, oh so sorry, Reverend. Uh, you know, no offense, you know. And, uh, and uh, as though God can only hear when the pastor hears. God can only see when the pastor sees. Well, I have news for everybody. God hears and sees everything. He doesn't need my help to know what's going on. And, and Paul is well aware of this capacity on the part of some to act differently when he was around. I mean, the Corinthian church was a great example of this. I mean, they seemed to act one way when Paul was with them, and they get all spiritual sounding and uh, even boasting about their spirituality. But, but when he was gone... They'd get carnal and worldly and fleshly faster than a lion on a three-legged zebra. And, and he'd leave and they'd, they'd end up in all kinds of worldly divisions and arguments and boasting and bragging and self-serving and all kinds of nastiness. But that, that doesn't seem to be the case here with these Philippians. He says, you obeyed the Father when I was with you, and even when I'm not with you, you seem to be obeying the Father. You know, and I trust that that is your testimony as well. I mean, I trust that. I trust that the same love that I see so many husbands and wives express to each other while you're here, that you're expressing that same love when you get home because God still sees you. I mean, I trust that the same uh, love that I see parents express to their children while you're here, that you're expressing that same love and care at home because you know that God is still seeing you. And children, that respect that I see you uh, Give to your parents when you're here. I trust that you're giving that same respect to your parents at home because God is still seeing you. And the type of love and expressions of kindness that I, that I see among you when, you hear, when you're here, I trust that you're giving those same types of expressions to everybody that you come across with in the marketplace, at the job place, because God is still seeing you. That you obey God no matter who is watching you or where you are. I trust that. I believe that about you. Unless you give me some reason not to believe that, I believe that about you. 
And Paul's saying to them and to us, like, since Jesus made such a sacrifice and is now exalted, and since he's such an example of obedience, and since, you know, you want to be an example of obedience to the Father as well, well, now he's going to show them how to respond to that. He's going to show them what steps come next. And so several things follow naturally from all of that in the rest of verse 12 and verse 13. And so we'll spend the rest of our time together unpacking three things that we can see in these verses, all right? So here's the first one. He says, work out your salvation. He says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, notice that he does not say, work for your salvation with fear and trembling. We do not work for our salvation. That's called legalism. It's the idea that somehow we work or earn or deserve our salvation. Uh, And this is where the Pharisees went so wrong. You remember the Pharisees, right? I mean, they felt like they could, if they could just do enough good works, do enough righteous things, that they would be good with God. But in the process of trying to be righteous, in the process of trying to earn righteousness, they ended up missing everything that the prophet Micah said that they were supposed to have. They missed justice. They missed mercy, and they missed humility. And instead of becoming righteous, they became self-righteous. And instead of expressing mercy, they expressed judgment. And instead of becoming humble, they instead became proud and arrogant. And even the Apostle Paul himself had to battle this and get past this legalistic righteousness. I mean, he talks about it in the next chapter. I mean, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here, but we'll see that his legalistic righteousness led him to a proud, arrogant, judgmental existence that was devoid of any mercy and love and that lacked any true righteousness. And he had to lay all of that down to receive the grace of God and the righteousness of Jesus. You know, if there's one thing that becomes clear, abundantly clear, the more and more you read the New Testament, is that you can't save yourself. I can't save myself. You could never be good enough to meet God's standard. We we just don't meet that standard. God is holy, and, and, and we're sinful by nature. Paul told the Galatians, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. He told the Romans that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Salvation is not something you earn or deserve or work for. It says you were dead in your transgressions and sins. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. For it's by grace you have been saved. It's the gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. And so Paul here does not say, continue to work for your salvation, right? But notice, he does not also say, he doesn't say, continue in sin, right? He doesn't say, you know, Continue in your salvation with a carefree, laissez-faire, cavalier approach to your life, right? He doesn't say, continue in sin that grace may abound. I mean, some people slanderously said that and claimed that Paul was saying, let us do evil that good may result. You know, there are teachers out there today 
who say that because salvation is by grace through faith, that that means that sin doesn't matter at all. I mean, you can just sin all you want. It just really doesn't matter at all, right? And there are even some that say that if you mention sin at all in the course of a sermon, that, that uh, um, you're preaching legalism. That if you say something along the lines of, you know, a Christian shouldn't be dominated by sexual immorality or lust. Or if you say, like, a Christian should put aside things like rage and slander and malice and those types of, of things, that you're preaching legalism. You know, and one wonders with those who say that, one wonders what they do with passages like Colossians chapter 3 and so many other places where Paul tells believers in Jesus to put to death whatever belongs to the sinful nature, to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil greed, uh, which is idolatry. And, uh, and then he goes on to say, you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander and filthy language from your lips. You know, the problem with those who believe in license or what some call libertinism or antinomianism, the problem is that it reduces the gospel to a kind of head knowledge experience. It reduces the gospel to a theory. And the experience of the believer becomes mostly theoretical. And the idea becomes, have the right ideas about God. It's more about having the right faith about God than it is about having a transformational faith in God. And so, you know, I love how Paul constructs this phrase here because it comes against two wrong ideas about the gospel and its message and two wrong ideas about Jesus and why he came, right? Um, this, This construct comes against, it disallows legalism and it disallows license. But instead, it insists on a transformational relationship of faith that is lived out, or in Paul's words here, worked out day by day. Because the gospel is transformational. A relationship with Jesus is transformational. It's not a self-help method. It's not a self-improvement method. And it's also not a hall pass to do whatever you want. It's a transformational relationship in which someone who was dead now becomes spiritually alive to God. A transformational relationship in which someone who was controlled and dominated by self and the sinful nature now becomes controlled by the Holy Spirit and dominated by the grace of God. It's a transformational relationship that begins when the Holy Spirit convinces someone that they're a sinner, that, they, that they're helplessly lost, and that they need repentance and, and uh, faith in Christ and what he did on the cross. And at that moment, when that faith becomes activated, the Holy Spirit comes in and regenerates a person. That's just a fancy word for saying that the Holy Spirit takes something that was spiritually dead and now makes it spiritually alive again. And then it doesn't even end there. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in that person and seeks to lead and guide and control that person's life. And and Jesus begins to live his resurrection life through us. It's transformational. The Holy Spirit is trying to conform us to the image of Jesus. And Paul describes it this way in his letter to the Ephesians. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. When you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also used to live among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its 
desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's not a self-improvement method. It's not a hall pass. It's a transformational relationship with God that makes dead people alive again. And that living relationship is supposed to work its way into our lives and produce something, produce fruit in our lives. And so Paul is telling them to, to work out this salvation to work out the implications of this salvation. Now, pause for a second here. Now, if Paul had stopped right there, if he hadn't gone on, it would leave a big question in our minds, right? I mean, what does he mean to say? I mean, when he says, work out your salvation. I mean, does he mean to say, you know, now, now that God has saved you, um, you go ahead on your own, and, on your own strength and work out your salvation, right? I mean, does he mean to say, you know, go ahead in your own strength and live out your Christian life, right? I mean, you might get that idea if he had stopped right there. But instead, he goes on to this awesome verse, verse 13. I mean, this verse is so great. There's so much awesome stuff packed in this verse. He says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. It is God who works in you in order to will and act in order to fulfill his good purpose. You don't work out your own salvation in your own strength. You don't act the way you should out of your own righteousness. You don't live the Christian life out of the force of your own will. It is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. All right, so now there are two things here. So let's look at them each one at a time, and then we'll put them back together after us, right? So first it says, it's God who works in you to will to fulfill his good purpose. The will, the desire... God is the one who puts the desire in us to do the right thing. I mean, the Holy Spirit living in us gives us the will or desire to live the right way. I mean, if you have any desire in you to do what is right, if you day by day find yourself having any inkling down in in your heart uh, to do the right thing, to say the right words, to have the right motives, right? Uh, um, If you want to do the right thing, it's not because, you know, you're so great. If I want to do the right things, not because I'm so great or, or so awesome or anything like that. It's the continuing work of the life-giving Holy Spirit working in us, working in me, working in you. The Holy Spirit continues his working in us to desire to do God's purposes. And, and that's really important because living a Christian life, right, working out your salvation is more than just about making right moral choices. I mean, that's part of it, right? Making the right moral choices, right? But, but, but it's more than about that. Sometimes it's about enduring hardship and suffering for Jesus. 
You remember chapter 1, how Paul shared with them all of the hardship and the suffering that he was going through. And then remember at the end of chapter 1, where he told them that, for it's been granted unto you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, right? You remember all of that? You know, there are times of blessing in the Christian life, and there are times of trials. There are times of refreshing, and there are times of difficulty. You know, so from time to time, you know, I'll hear people say things like, you know, uh, I just don't know if I have the strength to make it for Jesus. You know, I don't know if I can suffer for Jesus. I don't, I don't know if I have the strength of will. You know, uh, I'm not like some of these other people, Pastor Paul. You know, uh, Pastor Paul, I'm not like Peter and all the other apostles who could just do all that because of the strength of their will. You know, and uh, I hear people say things like that. But honestly, can I tell you something? Peter was not really that strong. Do you all remember the Last Supper? And, and Jesus began to say to them um, that uh, uh, they were all going to fall away. And they were all going to forsake him that night. And what did Peter say? Peter looked right at Jesus and said, Never, Lord. I will never leave you or forsake you. You know what? Can I give you some advice? Don't ever say, Never, Lord. I mean, because that's a really strange contradiction, isn't it? I mean, you can say, Never, but he's not really your Lord if you tell Jesus never. I mean, and you can say, Lord, but you don't say never if, he, if he's your Lord, right? It's a contradiction. And, uh, and so Peter disagrees with Jesus and says he will never forsake him. And Jesus looked back at Peter and, you know, I believe through loving and compassionate eyes, um, told him before the rooster crows twice, you will deny three times that you even know me. And Peter looked back at him and said, no, Jesus, you're wrong. Even if I have to die with you, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And all the others said the same thing, right? They were bold. They were boastful. They were strong-willed. They sounded spiritual. And that night, they all forsook him. And Peter, when he was interrogated by a little servant girl, denied three times that he even knew who Jesus was. A lot of good their strong will did them. In that moment. But do you remember back to the beginning of chapter 1 of Philippians? I mean, do you remember what Paul said he was confident about in verse 6? He said that he's confident that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Not he who began a good work in you hopes you'll find a way to make it. Right? Not, you know, he who began a good work in you hopes you'll figure it out. Not he who began a good in you hopes you'll be strong-willed enough. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God doesn't start his work in us and then ask us to finish it for him. It is God who works in you to will, to desire, to fulfill his good purpose. And then lastly, it's God who works in you to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. God gives you the ability, the power to act when it's time to act. So if you find yourself acting out the gospel, if you find yourself acting in love and enjoying in peace and in patience and kindness with people and acting in self-control, right? If you find yourself doing the right thing, then again, it's not because you're so great, 
Right? It's not because I'm so great or we're more moral or, or just better people you know, than other people. It has nothing to do with, with that. Right? It's God working in you to act in a way that honors him. It's, it's the Holy Spirit continuing to work in you to give you the ability to do the right thing, to act in the right way. This is why Paul said that grace means that no one can boast. The good works that we do are works that God prepared in advance for us to do by his grace. And going on, it says that God works in us to act in order to do what? To fulfill his purposes. God's got purposes for your life. God's got ideas for your life. He wants to accomplish a lot of good things in you and through you. He has ways he wants you to act in order to advance his kingdom and his purposes. You know, Jesus once told a parable. Do you remember the parable of the different kinds of soils? And he said that when the gospel, uh, the seed of the gospel falls on good soil, it produces um, a crop. It always produces a crop. But then he went on to say something really interesting. He said sometimes it produces a crop that's 30-fold, and sometimes 60-fold, and sometimes 100-fold. You know, I believe that God wants us all to be 100-fold Christians. I mean, that ought to be our desire. God, make me a hundredfold Christian. Do, do everything you want to do in my life. You know, it's God's desire to touch the world through you. And, you know, I, I don't know how often I've heard people say things like, you know, God has, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life, right? And, you know, I, I suppose that's true, but the problem is that it often becomes very egocentric. It often becomes very me-centric, focused on self, right? And so we start to think, ooh, wow, isn't, isn't that great? God has a wonderful plan for, for my life. I, I wonder what it is. I wonder if he wants me to be a millionaire. You know, I wonder if maybe God wants me to be, me to be rich and famous or if he wants me to be powerful and, and influential. You know, I wonder what God wants me to be. What, what does God want for me? What does God want for me? What does God want for me? And it's usually very me-focused. You know, and I think it would be much better to say that God loves you so much that he sent his one and only son to die for you, to redeem you so that you could be forgiven and, uh, and transformed and have a relationship with him. And now he wants you to be part of his wonderful plan in the world because it really is about his purposes. And, you know, I'm not really sure that we can really find the kind of peace that we are looking for until we finally really surrender our hearts to his purposes. When we finally decide that we are going to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and that he'll add all these other things to us. You know, I, I think it's really tempting to seek first all the other things. I've got to run after all those things. I know I'm not sure if I'm going to have them. Get all worried, you know, and... Uh, and and get all focused on that. And if, if there's any room for God after that, then I'll add God into that. That can be really tempting. But in the end, we find out that chasing material things never really leads to the peace that we're so desperately seeking. But when you seek first the kingdom of God, you find that the God who said, I will provide everything you need out of my riches and glory becomes faithful to you. He remains faithful to you. And you find that when you seek his kingdom, the God of hope fills you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. 
so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Or in Paul's words later in this letter, you find that the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. God works his grace in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. He gives us the desire, the will to do what is right and accomplish his purposes. And he gives us the ability, the power to follow through and actually accomplish those purposes. He says, therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. All right, now, as we get ready to conclude this service, uh, I want to pray with you. Uh, I believe Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, wants to lift you up and encourage you. So would you all bow with me for prayer for a moment? And if you've been wondering, you know, how are you going to make it? You know, through all of the stuff that we've been going through, if you've been feeling and sensing your own weakness and maybe even feeling like, you know, you can barely take another step sometimes, I want you to know that Jesus is walking with you. Jesus is the one who will continue to give you the strength that you need. You know, and I want you to know also, if you are not yet a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've not yet bowed your knees, surrendered your heart, and confessed him as Lord, if if you've been facing all of these challenges of life by yourself, well, you don't have to walk this life alone. God wants to walk it with you. He wants to have a relationship with you. And you can start a relationship with him by saying a prayer similar to this one. Just say something like this to God. God, I confess that I'm a sinner. I don't measure up to your standard. You're holy, and, and I'm not. I'm sinful. But I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that he rose again from the dead. So Jesus, please be my Savior and be my Lord. Help me walk with you all of the days of my life and increase my faith each and every day in Jesus' name.